Chapter One of The Last Plainsman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. The Last Plainsman by Zane Gray. Chapter One. The Arizona Desert. One afternoon, far out on the sun-baked wastes of sage, we made camp near a clump of withered pinyon trees. The cold desert wind came down upon us with a sudden darkness. Even the Mormons, who were finding the trail for us across the drifting sands, forgot to sing and pray at sundown. We huddled around the campfire, a tired and silent little group, when out of the lonely, melancholy night some wandering Navajos stole like shadows to our fire. We hailed their advent with delight. They were good-natured Indians, willing to barter a blanket or bracelet, and one of them, a tall, gaunt fellow, with the bearing of a chief, could speak a little English. Oh said he in a deep chest voice hello notacotty greeted jim emmett the mormon guide ugh answered the indian big pale-face buffalo jones big chief buffalo man introduced emmett indicating jones oh the navajos spoke with dignity and extended a friendly hand jones big white chief rope buffalo tie up tight continued emmett making motions with his arm as if he were whirling a lasso. "'No big heap small buffalo,' said the Indian, holding his hand level with his knee and smiling broadly. Jones, erect, rugged, brawny, stood in the full light of the campfire. He had a dark, bronze, inscrutable face, a stern mouth and square jaw, keen eyes half-closed from years of searching the wide plains and deep furrows wrinkling his cheeks. A strange stillness enfolded his features, the tranquillity earned from a long life of adventure. He held up both muscular hands to the Navajo and spread out his fingers. "'Rope buffalo, heap big buffalo, heap many one son.' The Indian straightened up, but kept his friendly smile. "'Me big chief,' went on Jones. Me go far north, land of little sticks, Naza, Naza, rope muskot, rope white manitou, of great slaves, Naza, Naza. Naza, replied the Navajo, pointing to the north star. No, no. Yes, me big pale face, me come long way toward setting sun, go cross big water, go buckskin, Siwash chase cougar. The cougar, or mountain lion, is a Navajo god, and the Navajos hold him in as much fear and reverence as do the great slave Indians, the muskox. No kill cougar, continued Jones, as the Indian's bold features hardened. Run cougar horseback. Run long way. Dogs chase cougar long time. Chase cougar up tree. Me big chief. Me climb tree. Climb high up lasso cougar rope cougar tie cougar all tight. The Navajo's solemn face relaxed. White man heap fun, no? Yes, cried Jones, extending his great arms. Me strong, me rope cougar, me tie cougar, right off wigwam, keep cougar alive. No, replied the savage vehemently. Yes, protested Jones, nodding earnestly. No, answered the Navajo louder, raising his dark head. Yes, shouted Jones. Big lie, the Indian thundered. Jones joined good-naturedly in the laugh at his expense. The Indian had crudely voiced a skepticism. 
I had heard more delicately hinted in New York, and singularly enough, which had strengthened on our way west, as we met ranchers, prospectors, and cowboys. But those few men I had fortunately met who really knew Jones more than overbalanced the doubt and ridicule cast upon him. I recalled a scarred old veteran of the plains who had talked to me in true western bluntness. Say, young feller, I hear you couldn't get across the canyon for the deep snow on the north rim. Well, you're lucky. Now you're hit to trail for New York and keep going. Don't ever tackle the desert, especially with them Mormons. They've got water on the brain worse than religion. It's two hundred and fifty miles from Flagstaff to Jones Range, and only two drinks on the trail. I know this here Buffalo Jones. I knowed him way back in the seventies, when he was doing them roping stunts that made him famous as the preserver of the American bison. I know about that crazy trip of his'n to the barren lands after musk ox, and I reckon I can guess what he'll do over there in the Siwash. He'll rope cougars, sure he will and watch him jump. Jones would rope the devil and tie him down if the lasso didn't burn. Oh, he's hell on roping things, and he's worse than hell on men and horses and dogs. All that my well-meaning friend suggested made me, of course, only the more eager to go with Jones. Where I had once been interested in the old buffalo hunter, I was now fascinated. And now I was with him in the desert and seeing him as he was, a simple, quiet man who fitted the mountains and the silences and the long reaches of distance. It does seem hard to believe all this about Jones, remarked Judd, one of Emmett's men. How could a man have the strength and the nerve? And isn't it cruel to keep wild animals in captivity? Isn't it against God's word? Quick as speech could flow, Jones quoted, and God said, Let us make man in our image, and give him dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowls of the air, over the cattle, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Dominion over all the beasts of the field, repeated Jones, his big voice rolling out. He clenched his huge fist and spread wide his long arms. Dominion, that was God's word. The power and intensity of him could be felt. Then he relaxed, dropped his arm, and once more grew calm. But he had shown a glimpse of the great, strange, and absorbing passion of his life. Once he had told me how, when a mere child, he had hazarded limb and neck to capture a fox squirrel, how he had held on to the vicious little animal, though it bit his hand through, how he had never learned to play the games of boyhood, that when the youth of the little Illinois village where it play, he roamed the prairies of the rolling wooded hills or watched the gopher hole. That boy was father of the man. For sixty years an enduring passion for dominion over wild animals had possessed him, and made his life an endless pursuit. Our guests and Navajos departed early, and vanished silently in the gloom of the desert. We settled down again into a quiet that was broken only by the low chant-like song of the praying Mormon. Suddenly the hounds bristled, and old Mose, a surly and aggressive dog, rose and barked at some real or imaginary desert prowler. A sharp command from Jones made Mose crouch down, and the other hounds cowered close together. "'Better tie up the dogs,' suggested Jones. "'Like it or not, coyotes run down here from the hills.' 
The hounds were my especial delight, but Jones regarded them with considerable contempt. When all was said, this was no small wonder, for that quintet of long-eared canines would have tried the patience of a saint. Old Mose was a Missouri hound that Jones had procured in that state of uncertain qualities, and the dog had grown old over coon trails. He was black and white, grizzled and battle-scarred, and if ever a dog had an evil eye, Mose was that dog. He had a way of wagging his tail, an indeterminate, equivocal sort of wag, as if he realized his ugliness and knew he stood little chance of making friends, but was still hopeful and willing. As for me, the first time he manifested this evidence of a good heart under a rough coat, you won me forever. To tell of Moses' derelictions up to that time would take more space than would a history of the whole trip, but the enumeration of several incidents will at once stamp him as a dog of character, and will establish the fact that even if his progenitors had never taken any blue ribbons, they had at least bequeathed him fighting blood. At Flagstaff we chained him in the yard of a livery stable. Next morning we found him hanging by his chain on the other side of an eight-foot fence. We took him down, expecting to have the sorrowful duty of burying him. But Mose shook himself, wagged his tail, and then pitched into the livery stable dog. As a matter of fact, fighting was his forte. He whooped all the dogs in Flagstaff and when our bloodhounds came on from California, he put three of them hors de combat at once, and subdued the pup with a savage growl. His crowning feat, however, made even the stoatical Jones open his mouth in amaze. We had taken Mose to El Tovar at the Grand Canyon, and finding it impossible to get over to the North Rim, we left him with one of Jones's men called Rust, who was working on the canyon trail. Rust's instructions were to bring Mose to Flagstaff in two weeks. He brought the dog a little ahead of time, and roared his appreciation of the relief it was to get the responsibility off his hands, and he related many strange things, most striking of which was how Mose had broken his chain and plunged into the raging Colorado River, and tried to swim it just above the terrible Stockdagger Rapids. Rust and his fellow workmen watched the dog disappear in the yellow, wrestling, turbulent whirl of waters and had heard his knell in the booming roar of the falls. Nothing but a fish could live in that current. Nothing but a bird could scale those perpendicular marble walls. That night, however, when the men crossed to the tramway, Mose met them with a wag of his tail. He had crossed the river, and he had come back. To the four reddish-brown, big-framed bloodhounds, I had given the names of Don, Tige, Jude, and Ranger and by the dint of persuasion had succeeded in establishing some kind of family relation between them and Mose. This night I tied up the bloodhounds after bathing and salving their sore feet, and I left Mose free, for he grew fretful and surly under restraint. The Mormons' prone, dark-blanket figures lay on the sand. Jones was crawling into his bed. I walked a little way from the dying fire and faced the north, where the desert stretched mysterious and illuminable. How solemn and still it was! I drew in a great breath of the cold air and thrilled with a nameless sensation. Something was there, away to the northward. It called me from out of the dark and gloom. I was going to meet it. I lay down to sleep with the great blue expanse open to my eyes. The stars were very large and wonderfully bright. 
yet they seemed so much further off than I had ever seen them. The wind softly sifted the sand. I hearkened to the tinkle of the cowbells on the hobbled horses. The last thing I remembered was old Mose creeping close to my side, seeking the warmth of my body. When I awakened, a long, pale line showed out of the dun-colored clouds in the east. It slowly lengthened and tinged to red. Then the morning broke, and the slopes of snow on the San Francisco peaks behind us glowed a delicate pink. The Mormons were up and doing with the dawn. They were stalwart men, rather silent and all workers. It was interesting to see them pack for the day's journey. They traveled with wagons and mules in the most primitive way, which Jones assured me was exactly as their fathers had crossed the plains fifty years before on the trail to Utah. All morning we made good time, and as we descended into the desert the air became warmer, the scrubby cedar growth began to fail, and the bunches of sage were few and far between. I turned often to gaze back at the San Francisco peaks. The snow-capped tips glistened and grew higher, and stood out in startling relief. Someone said they could be seen two hundred miles across the desert, and were landmark, and a fascination to all travelers thitherward. I never raised my eyes to the north that I did not draw my breath quickly, and grow chill with awe and bewilderment with the marvel of the desert. The scaly red ground descended gradually, bare red knolls like waves, rolled away northward, black buttes roared their flat heads, long ranges of sand flowed between them like streams, and all sloped away to merge into gray, shadowy obscurity, into wild and desolate, dreamy and misty nothingness. Do you see those white sand dunes there? More to the left, asked Emmett. The little Colorado runs in there. How far does it look to you? Thirty miles, perhaps, I replied, adding ten miles to my estimate. It's seventy-five. We'll get there day after tomorrow. If the snow in the mountains has begun to melt, we'll have a time getting across. That afternoon a hot wind blew in my face, carrying a fine sand that cut and blinded, filled my throat, sending me to the water cask till I was ashamed. When I fell into my bed at night, I never turned. The next day was hotter, the wind blew harder, the sand stung sharper. About noon the following day the horses whinnied, and the mules roused out of their tardy gait. They smell water, said Emmett, and despite the heat and sand in my nostrils I smelled it too. The dogs, poor footsore fellows, trotted on ahead down the trail. A few more miles of hot sand and gravel and redstone brought us around a low mesa to the little Colorado. It was a wide stream of swiftly running reddish muddy water, in a channel cut by floods, Little streams trickled and meandered in all directions. The main part of the river ran in close to the bank we were on. The dogs lolled in the water, the horses and mules tried to run in, but were restrained. The men drank and bathed their faces. According to my flagstaff adviser, this was one of the two drinks I would get on the desert. So I availed myself heartily of the opportunity. The water was full of sand, but cold and gratefully thirst-quenching. The little Colorado seemed no more to me than a shallow creek. I heard nothing sullen or menacing in its musical floral. "'Doesn't look bad, eh?' queried Emmett, who read my thought. "'You'd be surprised to learn how many men and Indians, horses, sheep, and wagons are buried under that quicksand.' The secret was out, and I wondered no more. At once the stream and wet bars of sand took on a different color. 
I removed my boots and waded out to a little bar. The sand seemed quite firm, but water oozed out around my feet, and when I stepped the whole bar shook like jelly. I pushed my foot through the crust, and the cold, wet sand took hold and tried to suck me down. "'How can you ford this stream with horses?' I asked Emmett. "'Well, you must take our chances,' replied he. "'We'll hitch two teams to one wagon and run the horses. I've forded here at worse stages than this. Once a team got stuck and I had to leave it. Another time the water was high and washed me downstream. Emmett sent his son into the stream on a mule. The rider lashed his mount and, plunging, splashing, crossed at a pace near a gallop. He returned in the same manner and reported one bad place near the other side. Jones and I got on the first wagon and tried to coax up the dogs, but they would not come. Emmett had to lash the four horses to start them, and the other Mormons, riding alongside, yelled at them and used their whips. The wagons bowled into the water with a tremendous splash. We were wet through before we had gone twenty feet. The plunging horses were lost in yellow spray. The stream rushed through the wheels. The Mormons yelled. I wanted to see, but was lost in a veil of yellow mist. Jones yelled in my ear, but I could not hear what he said. Once the wagon wheel struck a stone or log, almost lurching us overboard, a muddy splash behind me. I cried out in my excitement and punched Jones in the back. Next moment the keen exhilaration of the ride gave way to horror. We seemed to drag and almost stop. Someone roared, Horse down! One instant of painful suspense in which imagination pictured another tragedy added to the record of this deceitful river, a moment filled with intense feeling and sensation of splash and yell and fury of action, then the three able horses dragged their comrade out of the quicksand. He regained his feet and plunged on. Spurred by fear, the horses increased their efforts and, amid clouds of spray, galloped the remaining distance to the other side. Jones looked disgusted. Like all plainsmen, he hated water. Emmett and his men calmly unhitched. No trace of alarm, or even of excitement, showed in their bronzed faces. We made it fine and easy, remarked Emmett. So I sat down and wondered what Jones and Emmett and these men would consider really hazardous. I began to have a feeling that I would find out. That experience for me was but in its infancy, that far across the desert, that something which had called me would show hard, keen, perilous life and I began to think of reserve powers of fortitude and endurance. The other wagons were brought across without mishap, but the dogs did not come with him. Jones called and called. The dogs howled and howled. Finally I waded out over the wet bars and little streams to a point several hundred yards nearer the dogs. Mose was lying down, but the others were whining and howling in a state of great perturbation. I called and called. They answered and even ran into the water, but did not start across. Hey, you Mose! Hey, you Indian! I yelled, losing my patience. You've already swum the big Colorado, and this is only a brook. Come on! This appeal evidently touched Mose because he barked and plunged in. He made the water fly, and when carried off his feet, breasted the current with energy and power. He made sure almost even with me and wagged his tail. Not to be outdone, Jude, Tig, and Don followed suit, and first one and then another was swept off his feet and carried downstream. They landed below me. This left Ranger, the pup, alone on the other side. Of all the pitiful yelps ever uttered by a frightened and lonely puppy, his was the most forlorn I had ever heard. Time after time he plunged in, and with many bitter howls of distress went back. I kept calling, 
and at last, hoping to make him come by a show of indifference, I started away. This broke his heart. Putting up his head, he let out a long, melancholy wail, which for aught I knew might have been a prayer, and then consigned himself to the yellow current. Ranger swam like a boy learning. He seemed to be afraid to get wet. His four feet were continually pawing the air in front of his nose. When he struck the swift place, he went downstream like a flash, but still kept swimming valiantly. I tried to follow along the sandbar, but found it impossible. I encouraged him by yelling. He drifted far below, stranded on an island, crossed it, and plunged in again, to make sure almost out of my sight. And then at last I got to dry sand. There was Ranger, wet and disheveled, but consciously proud and happy. After lunch we entered upon the seventy-mile stretch from the little to the big Colorado. Imagination had pictured the desert for me as a vast, sandy plain, flat and monotonous. Reality showed me desolate mountains gleaming bare in the sun, long lines of red bluffs, white sand dunes, and hills of blue clay, areas of level ground, in all a many-hued, boundless world in itself, wonderful and beautiful, fading all around in the purple haze of deceiving distance. Thin, clear, sweet, dry, the desert air carried a languor, a dreaminess, tidings of far-off things and an enthralling promise, the fragrance of flowers, the beauty and grace of women, the sweetness of music, the mystery of life, all seemed to float on that promise. It was the air breathed by the lotus-eaters when they dreamed and wandered no more. Beyond the little Colorado we began to climb again. The sand was thick, the horses labored, the drivers shielded their faces, the dogs began to limp and lag. Ranger had to be taken into a wagon, and then, one by one, all of the other dogs except Mose, he refused to ride, and trotted along with his head down. Far to the front, the pink cliffs, the ragged messes, and the dark volcanic spurs of the big Colorado stood up and beckoned us onward. But they were a far hundred miles across the shifting sands, and baked clay and ragged rocks. Always in the rear rose the San Francisco peaks, cold and pure, startlingly clear and close in the rare atmosphere. We camped near another water hole, located in a deep yellow-colored gorge, crumbling to pieces a ruin of rock and silent as the grave. In the bottom of the canyon was a pool of water, covered with green scum. My thirst was effectively quenched by the mere sight of it. I slept poorly and lay for hours watching the great stars. The silence was painfully oppressive. If Jones had not begun to give a respectable imitation of the exhaust pipe on a steamboat, I should have been compelled to shout aloud, or get up, but his snoring would have dispelled anything. The morning came gray and cheerless. I got up stiff and sore, with a tongue like a rope. All day long we ran the gauntlet of the hot flying sand. Night came again, a cold, windy night. I slept well until a mule stepped on my bed which was conducive to restlessness. At dawn, cold, gray clouds tried to blot out the rosy east. I could hardly get up. My lips were cracked, my tongue was swollen to twice its natural size. My eyes smarted and burned. The barrels and kegs of water were exhausted. Holes that had been dug in the dry sand of a dry stream bed the night before in the morning yielded a scant supply of muddy alkali water, which went to the horses. Only twice that day did I rouse to anything resembling enthusiasm. We came to a stretch of country showing the wonderful diversity of the desert land. A long range of beautifully rounded clay dunes bordered the trail. 
so symmetrical were they that i imagined them work of sculptors light blue dark blue clay blue marine blue cobalt blue every shade of blue was there but no other color the other time that i awoke to sensations from without was when we came to the top of a ridge we had been passing through redlands jones called the place a strong specific word which really was illustrative of the heat amid those scaling red ridges we came out where the red changed abruptly to gray i seemed always to see things first and i cried out look here are red lake and trees no land not a lake said old jim smiling at me that's what haunts the desert traveler it's only a mirage so i awoke to the realization of that elusive thing the mirage a beautiful eye false as stairs of sand far northward a clear rippling lake sparkled in the sunshine tall stately trees with waving green foliage bordered on water for a long moment it lay there smiling in the sun a thing almost tangible and then it faded i felt a sense of actual loss so real had been the illusion that i could not believe i was not soon to drink and wade and dabble in the cool waters disappointment was keen this is what maddens the prospector or sheepherder lost in the desert was it not a terrible thing to be dying of thirst to see sparkling water almost to smell it and then realize suddenly that all was only a lying trick of the desert a lure a delusion i ceased to wonder at the mormons and their search for water their talk of water but i had not realized its true significance i had not known what water was i had never appreciated it so it was my destiny to learn that water is the greatest thing on earth i hung over a three-foot hole in a dry stream bed and watched it ooze and seep through the sand and fill up oh so slowly and i felt it loosen my parched tongue and steal through all my dry body with strength and life water is said to constitute three-fourths of the universe however that may be on the desert it is the whole world and all of life two days passed by all hot sand and wind and glare the mormons sang no more at evening jones was silent the dogs were limp as rags at moncopi wash we ran into a sandstorm the horses turned their backs to it and bowed their heads patiently the mormons covered themselves i wrapped a blanket round my head and hid behind a sagebrush the wind carrying the sand made a strange hollow roar all was enveloped in a weird yellow opacity the sand seeped through the sagebrush and swept by with a soft rustling sound not unlike the wind in the rye from time to time i raised a corner of my blanket and peeped out where my feet had stretched was an enormous mound of sand i felt the blanket weighted down slowly settle over me suddenly as it had come the sandstorm passed it left a changed world for us the trail was covered the wheels hubbed deep in sand the horses walking sand dunes i could not close my teeth without grating harshly on sand we journeyed onward and passed long lines of petrified trees some a hundred feet in length lying as they had fallen thousands of years before white ants crawled among the ruins slowly climbing the sandy trail we circled a great red bluff with jagged peaks that had seemed an interminable obstacle a scant growth of cedar and sage again made its appearance here we halted to pass another night 
Under a cedar I heard the plaintive, piteous bleat of an animal. I searched and presently found a little black-and-white lamb, scarcely able to stand. It came readily to me. I carried it to the wagon. "'That's a Navajo lamb,' said Emmett. "'It's lost. There are Navajo Indians close by. Away in the desert we heard its cry,' quoted one of the Mormons. Jones and I climbed the Red Mesa near camp to see the sunset. All the western world was ablaze in golden glory. Shafts of light shot toward the zenith, and bands of paler gold, tinging to rose, circled away from the fiery, sinking globe. Suddenly the sun sank, the gold changed to gray, then to purple, and shadows formed in the deep gorge at our feet. So sudden was the transformation that soon it was night, the solemn, impressive night of the desert. A stillness that seemed too sacred to break clasped the place. It was infinite. It held the bygone ages and eternity. More days and miles, miles, miles. The last day's ride to the big Colorado was unforgettable. We rode toward the head of a gigantic red cliff pocket, a veritable inferno, immeasurably hot, glaring, awful. It towered higher and higher above us. When we reached the point of this red barrier, we heard the dull, rumbling roar of water, and we came out at length on a winding trail cut in the face of the bluff overhanging the Colorado River. The first sight of most famous and much heralded wonders of nature is often disappointing. But never can this be said of the blood-hued Rio Colorado. If it had beauty, it was beauty that appalled. So riveted was my gaze that I could hardly turn it across the river, where Emmett proudly pointed out his lonely home, an oasis set down amidst beetling red cliffs. How grateful to the eye was the green of alfalfa and cottonwood. Going round the bluff trail, the wheels had only a foot of room to spare, and the sheer descent into the red, turbid, congested river was terrifying. I saw the constricted rapids where the Colorado took its plunge into the box-like head of the Grand Canyon of Arizona, and the deep, reverberating boom of the river at flood height was a fearful thing to hear. I could not repress a shudder at the thought of crossing above that rapid. The bronze walls widened as we proceeded, and we got down presently to a level where a long wire cable stretched across the river. Under the cable ran a rope. On the other side was an old scow moored to the bank. Are we going across in that? I asked Emmett, pointing to the boat. We'll all be on the other side before dark, he replied cheerily. I felt that I would rather start back alone over the desert than trust myself in such a craft on such a river, and it was all because I had experience with bad rivers, and I thought I was a judge of dangerous currents. The Colorado slid with a menacing roar out of a giant split in the red wall, whirled, eddied, bulged on toward its confinement in the iron-ribbed canyon below. In answer to shots fired, Emmett's man appeared on the other side and rode down to the ferry landing. He got into a skiff and rode laboriously upstream for a long distance before he started across, and then swung into the current. He swept down rapidly, and twice the skiff whirled and completely turned round. After he reached our bank safely, taking two men aboard, he rode upstream again, close to the shore, and returned to the opposite side in much the same manner in which he had come over. 
The three men pushed out the scow and, grasping the rope overhead, began to pull. The big craft ran easily. When the current struck it, the wire cable sagged, the water boiled and surged under it, rising one end and then the other. Nevertheless, five minutes were all that were required to pull the boat over. It was a rude, oblong affair, made of heavy planks loosely put together, and it leaked. When Jones suggested that we get the agony over as quickly as possible, I was with him, and we embarked together. Jones said he did not like the look of the tackle, and when I thought of his, by no means small mechanical skill, I had not added a cheerful idea to my consciousness. The horses of the first team had to be dragged upon the scow, and once on, they reared and plunged. When we started, four men pulled the rope, and Emmett sat in the stern, with the tackle guys in hand. As the current hit us, he let out the guys, which maneuver caused the boat to swing stern downstream. When it pointed obliquely, he made fast the guys again. I saw that this served two purposes. The current struck, slid alongside, and over the stern, which mitigated the danger, and at the same time helped the boat across. To look at the river was to court terror, but I had to look. It was an infernal thing. It roared in hollow, sullen voice, as a monster growling. It had a voice, this river, and one strangely changeful. It moaned as if in pain, it whined, it cried, and at times it would seem strangely silent. The current was as complex and as mutable as human life. It boiled, beat, and bulged. The bulge itself was an incomprehensible thing, like a roaring lift of the waters from a submarine explosion. Then it would smooth out and run like oil. It shifted from one channel to another, rushed to the center of the river, then swung close to one shore or the other. Again it swelled near the boat, in great boiling, hissing eddies. "'Look! See where it breaks through the mountain?' yelled Jones in my ear. I looked upstream to see the stupendous granite walls separated in a gigantic split that must have been made by a terrible seismic disturbance, and from this gap poured the dark, turgid, mystic flood. I was in a cold sweat when we touched shore, and I jumped long before the boat was properly moored. Emmett was wet to the waist, where the water had surged over him. As he sat rearranging some tackle, I remarked to him that, of course, he must be a splendid swimmer, or he would not take such risk. No, I can't swim a stroke, he replied, and it wouldn't be of any use if I could. Once in there, a man's a goner. You've had accidents here, I questioned. No, not bad. We only drowned two men last year. You see, we had to tow the boat up the river and row across, and then we hadn't the wire. Just above, on the other side, the boat hit a stone, and current washed over, taking off the team and two men. "'Didn't you attempt to rescue them?' I asked, after waiting a moment. "'No use. They never came up.' "'Isn't the river high now?' I continued, shuddering, as I glanced out at the whirling logs and drifts. "'I am coming up. If I don't get the other teams over today, I'll wait until she goes down. At this season she rises and lowers every day or so until June. Then comes the big flood, and we don't cross for months.' I sat for three hours watching Emmett bring over the rest of his party, which he did without accident, but at the expense of great effort, and all the time in my ears dinned the roar, the boom, the rumble, of this singularly propitious and purposeful river, a river of silt, 
a red river of dark, sinister meaning, a river with terrible work to perform, a river which never gave up its dead. End of chapter 1